0: Oh yeah, (laughs) we used to do that. get started here in a moment it's always a difficult job to interrupt everyone's visiting and start the class but uh there are notes if you haven't received notes back on the back two rows over here and back over here on the counter so there's a new packet that starts with page 17 we actually left off on 16 so we have one more page to do from the last handout and uh, Lord willing, we'll make it through most of uh, the new handout. Everybody doing well tonight? Starting to feel a little bit more like fall out there? Yeah. It's nice, nice evening to be indoors studying together, right? Yeah. Let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, I am thankful that you've spoken to us. I'm just grateful that we enjoy such great freedoms in studying the Bible, uh, being able to talk about it openly, having this this wonderful place and this setting provided for us. Um, I'm just asking that with all of these blessings and privileges uh, that you would help us to, by your Spirit, use this time well, and that we would listen very carefully uh, to what your prophet Matthew has to say about Jesus. And we ask for this help in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, I'll just uh, talk a little bit about page 15. We were still looking at that Arabic numeral 2. That point it says, you know, when Herod realizes that he's been tricked by the Magi. Remember in chapter 2, there's three big quotations or references to the Old Testament that kind of provide the backbone to the point that Matthew's trying to make about Jesus. The first quotation was from Hosea 11.1, Out of Egypt I've called my son. And I suggested there and tried to show you the argument for it, that Matthew knows that Hosea 11 is actually quoting older portions of Scripture. So on the way from Egypt to the Promised Land, while the people were in the wilderness... Balaam, that false prophet, had his mouth taken over, and he spoke just like God made his donkey speak, and he prophesied that someday there would be a great king who would come out of Egypt. On the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy 30, 28 through 30, that section of Deuteronomy, Moses again predicted it, that someday the exodus would be reversed, all the benefits would be rolled back, They'd go back to Egypt, but it'd be Egypt plus. It'd be Egypt and all other countries. And that from all of those countries that they found themselves scattered in, they'd have to have a new exodus. So Balaam talked about it. Moses talked about it. The prophets started talking about it. Hosea talks about it. And Matthew sees all of this as he reads his Old Testament. And he wants you to know that that Jesus is the man. Jesus is the one that Balaam talked about. Jesus is the one that Moses talked about. Jesus is the one that Hosea talked about. He's going to be the leader of this new exodus, this restoration of the people of Israel out from underneath their covenant curses. Well, then some people in Israel in the first century, they're in Judea, this province of, of Rome, might have said, we don't really need rescuing. You know, Our life isn't that bad. And that's that's sometimes the response that we get from people when we try to tell them how great Jesus is and what Jesus will someday accomplish. They're not really sure if they need Jesus because their life seems comfortable. And I think that's the main purpose of the second quotation, the one from Jeremiah 31. If you've got your Bibles open, it's there in Matthew chapter 2. This is where we left off, remember? Verse 18, he quotes the passage about a voice is heard in Rama, weeping in great mourning. So Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, the one who symbolically represents the mother of all 12 tribes, she's buried close to the deportation site where all of these Jewish boys would have been gathered into pens before their final trip to Babylon. And Rachel symbolically is weeping. Of course, there's literal women in those days that would have been weeping over their sons or their husbands. And Matthew wants you to know that those tears still continue. That the problem that began with the Babylonian deportation, remember one of those three big pivot points in the genealogy, the deportation? That problem has never been resolved. (laughs) And in case you, you doubt that, he points to what Herod has just done there with the children in Bethlehem. They have a usurper on the throne, an Edomite of all people. And he is killing Jewish boys and it's just as much of a problem as they faced underneath the Babylonians. Remember, this is the passage from Jeremiah 31. Matthew quotes the opening part about the voice weeping, the great mourning, but he wants you to think of the whole context. I think any time a New Testament writer quotes a snippet of an Old Testament passage, He wants you to go back and look at the entire context, or he thinks that you maybe already have memorized it or you're familiar with it like he has. And here in this passage, it begins with mourning and great weeping, but it ends with those same sons someday returning, okay? It's kind of a difficult concept for us because when we think of people returning or people receiving benefits, it has to be those same individuals because we think very individualistic in our culture, right? So to us, it doesn't seem very meaningful that if those same boys who went to Babylon, if they themselves don't come back, then how does this promise mean anything? But we'll see this in many passages in Matthew where in their um, Near Eastern mindset, they're more likely to think collectively of the people group. So as long as people from that group come back someday, then this promise is special to them, that those sons will return, all right? Those are the first two quotations. I think the third one, as I said, is maybe the most challenging. So let's pick up at at point three there at the top of page 16. So I say there, point three at the top of page 16, when Herod dies, an angel comes and tells Joseph to return from Egypt to to Judea, okay? This is the the passage here, verses 19 and 20. I'm actually going to show you at the top, Oh, if I can get this to work. It was a little slow there. It's not wanting to switch. I don't know. Any suggestions? Oh, there it is. Maybe it's just slow. Maybe I'll have to be patient. That's going to be hard for me because I don't want to race through these notes. I'm going to have to be patient. Slow down. Whoop! Oh, but then all of those keystrokes I just did are going to show up. Right, I'm going do to this, do this one more time and see if it stays. All right, what I'm trying to show you on this slide is that when Matthew quotes the angel speaking to Joseph, I think we understand from comparing the different gospel accounts that the New Testament writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they tell the story about Jesus, they're not always giving us exact word-for-word transcriptions of what an author is saying or what Jesus said in a particular situation. I say that because like, if you take the same account, so take the same story that appears in Matthew and Mark and Luke, and you compare them side by side, sometimes the wording is slightly different. So you shouldn't think of the gospel writers like a, what's the, what's the person, a court stenographer, is that the right word? Yeah, where it has to be exact, right? They're not sitting there with a tape recorder recording our Lord as they're speaking. They're directed by the Holy Spirit so that what they write is accurate and true. But sometimes they're paraphrasing. Sometimes they're changing the words. So Matthew is taking the words that this angel gave to Joseph, and he's deliberately making sure that we make the connection to Moses. So this is one more connection in the story of Jesus with Moses. So remember when Moses is out in the, the wilderness, after he's been out there for the time period as a shepherd in Midian, God says, you can go back now to, to Egypt because the people who were seeking you have died. Well, the, the angel's words to Joseph match almost exactly. So at the top, we have the words to Joseph. It says, for those who were seeking the child's life have died. Exodus 4.19 says, for all those who were seeking your life have died. So pretty much the only thing that they had to change was they went from your life, because he was speaking to Moses, and he changed it to the child's life. So it's just one more little connection between Moses, the original deliverer of the people of Israel, and Jesus, their, their final and greater deliverer. Okay? Another connection to the events of, of Moses' early life. So uh, Joseph decides he's going to take his family back to Egypt. He evidently attends to return to Bethlehem. I say there in the middle of the first paragraph. But there's this new ruler, Archelaus, who is just as dangerous as his father, Herod. So when Herod the Great dies in 4 BC, his kingdom is divided between three of his sons, and a piece of it goes back to the Syrians. All right, so this is, I'm being patient. See if the slide comes up here. So he dies, this kingdom that he's been given uh, by the Romans actually is divided into three chunks. And the, the chunk to the south, Judea, the part that that's in pink, was given to his son Archelaus. So this would have included Bethlehem, it would have included Jerusalem, all right? Archelaus, we know from history and it also says here in, in Matthew, he was a dangerous and unpredictable ruler so unpredictable and violent that after 10 years of his rule he actually had his kingdom taken away from him by rome and rome decided instead of putting another herodian on the throne we'll actually rule it more directly that's why when jesus at the end of his life goes on trial he's standing before pilate He's the actual roman governor or a prefect who's directly ruling the country but the other two sons seem to have been a little bit more mild so In the the purple areas here, you had the son named Herod Antipas. He rules over Galilee and Perea, and then there was another son named Philip who rules over these two orange areas, and then the, the larger province of Syria controls the green. That's why Galilee becomes a safe haven for Jesus, a relatively peaceful place for him to grow up and begin his ministry, because Antipas is a little bit more of a laid-back ruler compared to his his brother okay so joseph decides we can't go back to bethlehem because of archelaus so we'll actually move back to nazareth but when he moves back to nazareth in matthew two twenty-three, it tells us that all this was fulfilled point four there so that what was said through the prophets could be fulfilled that he would be called a nazarene so verse 23 so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this is a very difficult passage for us to interpret because there's no Old Testament passage that you can go to that says that Jesus or the Messiah would be a Nazarene. Now, most people have noticed that he doesn't say prophet either. Notice how he says prophets plural? I think that's a clue that he's not referring to one specific passage in the Old Testament. He's saying that, hey, now later in life, I'm talking about Matthew, I can look back and see what happened to Jesus and him growing up in Nazareth in some way fulfilled a bunch of different Old Testament prophecies, or it was consistent with a theme that ran through multiple prophets. Well, then the argument is, well, what is this theme? You know, what is the connection between Jesus and Nazareth? Point B there, one suggestion is that there's actually a, a pun A play on words, okay? So the Hebrew word for branch, Naser, sounds very much like the Greek word for Nazareth, Nazareth. So a branch in Hebrew is Nazer. The city would have been Nazareth. So they do have a similar sound. So one plausible argument is that Matthew is seeing a, a clever play on words. Because there were Old Testament passages, specifically Isaiah 11, 1, that referred to the Messiah as a branch. So they would, they would talk about a kingdom being a great tree. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream, where he sees himself as like this great big giant tree that then gets cut off. Or at the very end of this semester, when we get to Matthew chapter 13... Jesus will even talk about his own kingdom, as starting out as a little tiny seed that grows into a giant tree. But the, the tree of David, this great dynasty, had been lopped off by the Babylonians. And we had the long list of people who were obscure in that third section of the genealogy until all of a sudden Jesus showed up. But Jesus is very obscure and unassuming. And so the Old, the Old Testament prophets uh, refer to him as just this little tiny green sprout that all of a sudden starts growing out of this big tree that had been lopped off. So that's, that's one possibility. It has some plausibility to it, but I just wonder if, if you're making a, a reference to a pun that appears in one specific verse in the Old Testament, Isaiah 11, it seems likely that he would have said prophet singular or even quoted the Old Testament passage. I just wonder if that would have been as obvious to the original readers. I think another explanation is more likely. So I say there in, in C, Nazareth was a small town of perhaps only 200 people. Anybody here from a town of 200 people? So I moved here from western New York. Our township had between 200 and 300 people in, there, in the township. So it was a small place, right? So a small, unassuming place. Uh, We know from other places like John 1, 45 through 46, that people to the south in the larger cities like Jerusalem, they look down upon Nazareth. Do you remember what Nathaniel says? You know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know what? The Messiah is actually from there. We know that the people from that area spoke a little differently. They had a dialect. Remember when Peter is in the courtyard with the servant girl she says, hey, I know you're one of those guys that was with that Nazarene because of the way you speak, right? So that it was kind of a backwards place, a small place, a place where people talked funny. I think also it was looked down upon because, remember, it's at the very north of their territory, and it tended to be more mingled with Gentiles. So Jesus and his, his adopted father, Joseph, probably worked on a very large Greek city that was being built not far away. He would have regularly rubbed shoulders with Gentile people. And for all of those reasons, it would have seemed like a very strange and unlikely place for the Messiah to be born. But I would suggest that that's actually the kind of place that the Old Testament describes the Messiah growing up because he was a, a despised or looked down upon person. So we won't look as, at as, as many Old Testament passages as we did last week. We looked at a lot last week, right? We'll look at fewer, but this is one large one that I want to show you. So this is from those parentheses there in the middle of that paragraph C. This is Isaiah 49.7. If you want to circle that and look at it sometimes later. I'm going to have to remember to hit my slide here just a little quicker. So I'm, I'm waiting for it. But this is Isaiah 49.5-7. It says, and now the Lord says, so the person speaking, the person speaking in this prophecy is actually the Messiah himself. The servant of the Lord is speaking. So it's Isaiah writing it, but he's writing it as a prophecy using what we now know to be Jesus, the Messiah, his words. Okay, so the servant who's talking about himself in the first person, he is the Messiah, And he's telling us, the readers, of something that his Lord, God, the Father, has said to him. Okay, so it says, and now the Lord says, and then he paused. He says, this Lord that I'm talking about is he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to show you this passage first of all isn't that just remarkable that you have the Messiah himself speaking it's hard it would have been hard probably for Isaiah or for any other believer in his day to Put together all of these passages the way that we do because now with greater light it's easier for us for us to look back another thing I wanted you to notice though that from the very get-go the Messiah here is promised to be a light to the Gentiles so as we go through the story of Matthew and when this community that Jesus is building expands to include Gentiles like us most of us that's always been part of God's message But second of all, as we continue, here the the servant is still speaking. He says, this is what the Lord says. So this is, to put it in Trinitarian terms, this is what the Father is saying to the Son, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers, and this is what God says to him, kings will see you and stand up, princes will see and bow down, Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So the the Father here is reassuring the Son, I know that you've been despised, and I know that you've been abhorred, but kings will bow down to you. Someday the whole world will recognize you for who you truly are, and what you've actually accomplished on my behalf as my servant. So I, I think it is consistent with this passage Think of the Isaiah 52 passage that talks about how Jesus was viewed by his fellow countrymen. It seems consistent to think, yeah, this is how God would have done it. He would have had him grow up in a small, backward, obscure little village mingled in with Gentiles. It's just one of many things about him that made him despised and abhorred. Jesus would have been the kind of man that you would have passed on the street and not noticed and not given him a second thought. People just didn't truly recognize him for who he really was, all right? So just put that all together then. You've got, he is the leader of the new Exodus, Hosea 11. We desperately need the new Exodus because the tears of Rachel are still streaming down her face. And three, this great deliverer, this king that you've been waiting for for so long, he has popped up in a very obscure, unlikely place. Which is just one of many things about him that will be despised and abhorred. That's that's Matthew two in a nutshell. Any any questions there before I jump into three? Yes. Uh, when you mentioned how oh, in the Greek, uh Matthew's more or less quoting where in the Exodus passage, mm-hmm. uh, those who seek have died. How do you? in this disposationalist um coming to there's the principle that is kind of like Shakespeare for English, right? Where uh, certain language is taken from the Old Testament not necessarily as a quotation, but as just that's the way language works. Like we quote Shakespeare without intending to quote Shakespeare. So how would you differentiate an instance where let's say, in that one it is intentional versus one where it's just the way the language works? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll, I'll kind of restate your question. You tell me if I've, I've got it. But you're asking is it Am I violating basic principles of Bible study when I say that Matthew took some of Moses' words from Exodus and he kind of seems to be giving him a new meaning? Is that what you're getting at? Uh, kind of? Specifically the dispensation. I don't remember the name of the principle, so Yeah. I'm really bad at names. So it's the the idea is usually authorial intent. So what, whatever that original author means by his words, those that meaning stays. Mm-hmm. That a later author or a later reader, we can't come along and give his words new meaning. Yeah. So I guess my question is yeah. more more focus on Matthew's authorial intent. Right. How do you discern that that is his intent to pull from there, as opposed to just the way that the, right. that, that phrasing works? Yeah. So is it you know could it just be random? Could it be a coincidence? I think the more words you have in order, the more likely. So if I was talking about, say I had a coworker and and she was doing a really good job and I said, she's positively perfect in every way. I mean, that's enough of a snippet that's familiar to us that you could say, well, that probably wasn't a coincidence, right? He probably wants me to think about a particular story or a particular image, right? And then it becomes more likely if in that same conversation I've made other Mary Poppins references, right? So the more Mary Poppins references that there were in my conversation, the more likely you are to think, okay, yeah, Ryan actually didn't mean that. It wasn't just a a slip of the tongue. So I would look at all of those references to to Moses that we saw in chapter 2. So the fact that when he's born, there's a king who's trying to kill him. The fact that Hosea 11 is cited, the the Exodus passage. Uh, The fact that the Jeremiah 31 passage that gets quoted also has references to the Exodus. When we get into uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5, we'll see more of them. Probably the greatest example is when Jesus goes up on the mountain, the Sermon on the Mount. He goes up on a mountain. He sits down like Moses. He gives new law. So by the time you read through Matthew's gospel, you realize, okay, he's doing this enough times that he intentionally wants me to think of Moses. And if I have this phrase that comes from the Moses story that's almost word for word, then that, all that together would tell me, yeah, this is probably intentional, that Matthew wants you to see it. Any follow-up? or? I think that's an answer. Yeah. So it's, it's, the technical term would be verbal correspondence. How, how many words matched up? And then the second idea would be, did I drop enough of those cookie crumbs along the way that it seems like I'm I'm doing this intentionally? I think another interesting question is, well, why do they do that? Why does Why does Matthew sometimes just quote an Old Testament passage and make it really obvious? You know, this happened to fulfill such and such. And then why other times does he just seem to sneak it in, right? And I think that there is something delightful in reading when you realize that that a speaker or reader has just dropped something in like i used the example last week of you know it happened a long time ago in a galaxy far far away right if that's a story that you like <laughs> that you're familiar with that puts a smile on your face there's a delight in it it also makes you lean in a little bit more carefully and wonder, is he going to do this again? And so maybe I should listen a little bit more intently. And I think that's one reason the the New Testament writers do it. First of all, they they know the Old Testament better than we do, and they just delight in doing it. Secondly, every time they do it, they know they're drawing you in a little closer to listen a little bit better so that you catch the next one. And I think that's that's part of the reason. All right, let's look at chapter 3 then so chapter 3, we've got the presentation of the king. It's going to have two parts here. So first of all, um, we're going to have John the Baptist showing up as the the forerunner. And then we're going to have Jesus' baptism. Those are the two big stories that take place in chapter 3. Now, we know from the rest of the story about Jesus that at this point, he skipped ahead about 30 years. So we went from Jesus being somewhere around two years old, to now he's, he's somewhere in his 30s, okay? This is somewhere around the year 27 to 29. We have this man, John, if you flip the page to the top of page 17, he just appears preaching in the wilderness, which is kind of surprising that Matthew doesn't even tell us who this John was. He seems to assume that you know. I think the gospel writers often assume that you, the reader, have heard other stories about Jesus, other gospels or other traditions. Now, John is a very, very common name in the first century. There's actually books where they've gone through and they've, they've ranked names and how common they appear, both girl names and boy names. And John is at the very top of, not at the top, but very close to the top for, for a boy name. And we have two very well-known Johns, just in the life of Jesus, right? So Matthew has to tell us this John is the one who was a baptizer. So when he says he's the Baptist, he's not talking about a denomination, right? That, that term hasn't come along. He's saying, hey, this John that I'm talking about, he's that guy that you remember was baptizing people. He was John the baptizer. And specifically, he tells us there that he was baptizing in the in the wilderness of Judea. So the wilderness of Judea, think the very top of the Dead Sea where the Jordan River comes in Uh, Jerusalem is over here on the left remember we've talked about how it's right almost level with the top of the Dead Sea and it's way up in the mountains Jericho is right at the beginning where you start to make the trip up Okay, that's going to become important later in Jesus' life and there's this flat area around the sides of the river becomes very desert like this is where Sodom and Gomorrah would have been at one time And somewhere in that general area, which was barren and sparse, John appears and he's preaching. It probably would have reminded them of uh, both Moses in the wilderness and also prophets like Elijah who showed up in wilderness-like situations. And his message here is that the people need to repent. So verse 2, he's saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, all right? His basic message is that they need, to, they need to turn around and head a different direction. Now, that word there translated repent, it can simply mean to mean to change one's mind. Okay? And so sometimes you still will hear the argument that repentance doesn't actually involve an act of your will or anything that you do. It's purely intellectual. Okay? This argument sometimes will come around sometimes they'll, they'll phrase it as, you need to change your mind about Jesus. And so they almost make it synonymous with faith. And I think they're well-intentioned because they also point to passages in Scripture that say that we just need to believe on Jesus or exercise faith in Jesus. And since those passages seem to present faith as the only condition for receiving salvation, people will then try to redefine repentance so that the two are the same thing. Does that make sense? But a better way to view this is that they're they're both two sides of the same coin. That at our conversion, we both repent and we exercise faith in Jesus. Those two things happen as a package. And since they're a package, the New Testament writers can refer to one and assume that the other's there. So John likes to talk about faith. But if you'd asked John, he would have said, but that comes with repentance. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke like to talk about repentance, but they would have said, but that also includes faith. And there's other passages where the two are described together. So Dr. McCune, a longtime professor at our seminary, he writes in his systematic theology here, I think an excellent definition. If you want to highlight a definition right there in the middle of the paragraph, he says, repentance is a change of mind away from sin and towards God. It's a change of view, feeling, and purpose, respecting God, center, and the center himself. So it is a change of mind, but it's a change of mind and more. It's a change of mind that leads in a different direction. It's you realizing that the path that you've been on leads towards destruction. It's folly. And so I need to turn around, and I need to head a different direction. And always, if it's saving repentance has as its object faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So why is John giving this command? So he says repent, and then he says for, so that for there gives us the reason. You need to repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now this is, this is important. We have to spend a little time on this because when we get to chapter 4 and it talks about Jesus' preaching, he's preaching the exact same message. So John and Jesus, when they preach the gospel, it's the same gospel. They don't have different gospels. And their gospel is that you, as a sinner, need to repent. And why do you need to repent? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So what does that mean, to have come near? Now, there's some places, and I give you some examples in the New Testament, where when they talk about something coming near, it has the idea that it's it's already here, or it's already arrived. But often it has the idea of eminency, as in something's right around the corner. It's about to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. It could happen at any second. It's imminent, okay? So because of that, you need to act accordingly. And I think the idea actually comes from the Old Testament prophets. At the bottom of the page there, I say, Therefore, here in Matthew 3, 1... Or Matthew 3, I believe John, and later Jesus, announces the imminent arrival of the day of the Lord, which will bring in the kingdom. Both John and Jesus are speaking of the kingdom as near in a way that's analogous to how the Old Testament prophets spoke of the day of the Lord as near. Are you familiar with the concept of the day of the Lord in the New Testament or in the Old Testament? The Old Testament that said that someday God would have a day, that the Lord would have a day, a day when he would exercise both wrath on his enemies and Israel's enemies and also bring them to salvation. Uh, In the New Testament, that same day is referred to, but now the day is associated with Jesus. It's our Lord Jesus' day. It's not a day as in a 24-hour period. This will become really important when we get to the the final discourse in, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 24 and 25. When you think Day of the Lord, I think it's helpful to think of it as a campaign. So you're speaking of a long period of time as if it just happened in a moment. We do this with military campaigns. Do you have any history buffs here, military history buffs? So we'll refer to like the Battle of Gettysburg as if it's just the battle, but it's actually a three-day affair, right? Or a bigger example would be the Battle of Stalingrad, but actually stretched over months, right? Um, there's a war going on today in Ukraine that someday in history will be referred to as if it's just a dot on a map. But we, because we're living through it, realize that it's happening over months, a long period of time. The day of the Lord will be the same way. I think it starts with the the seven-year tribulation period and then extends through into the millennial reign of our Lord Jesus. But that whole campaign, when our Lord Jesus returns to take back what rightfully belongs to him, he will wage war. 1 Thessalonians says that Paul, when he went into a new city, would preach, they need to repent and be rescued from the coming wrath that's falling on this earth. All of these writers are talking about the same thing. So look at some Old Testament passages here. So Isaiah thirteen six it says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Uh, Ezekiel 7, 7 through 8 says, The day is near, there is panic, not joy on the mountains. Ezekiel 30 verse 30, or 30 verse 3 says, For the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. Joel 1.15, For the day of the Lord is near, it will come like destruction from the Almighty. And then Joel two one says, Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, which is the same word that's translated as near. So they're not always speaking of something that's already arrived but they're speaking as as something that's imminent, okay? That's what John's preaching, and that is what Jesus is actually preaching when we get to chapter 4. The next question is, what is this kingdom? What is this kingdom that's being announced by John and then later Jesus? Well, several answers have been given throughout just recent church history. If you're reading through that little book by Toussaint, you'll recognize that I'm taking these, these categories straight from him. So we'll just real quick run through these these, uh, views. And like every good teacher, if I list a bunch of views, my view is usually which one? The last one, right? That's just how these things work, right? So when we get to the last one, you'll know that's my view. So the first one would be the liberal social view, okay? So to them, the church fulfills Old Testament prophecy by improving society's ethical and social ideals as they follow Jesus' teaching. There's no emphasis on God's intervention in history to judge sin and establish his kingdom. So, for for these thinkers, for these teachers, uh, there is no return of Jesus. Uh, Most of them don't really believe in anything supernatural. We, as followers of Jesus' example, we create or live out the kingdom if we follow what he would do in this world. All right? So, just a few names. So, In Baptist circles, the the famous name here is Rauschenbusch. So in a second here, I'll have some pictures that pop up. So Rauschenbusch, at the beginning of the last century, is is a Baptist pastor in New York City. He's working in the Hell's Kitchen area. That's him in the top left there. He sees the just absolute poverty and suffering of the people. And he basically decides that his mission, the mission of the church, is to relieve their pain and suffering. Because for him... This, this life is all they really have. And he's usually thought of as the father then of the social gospel that doesn't have any idea of personal sin that needs to be atoned for or any kind of coming wrath or salvation for God's people. Another person to put in this category, Sheldon in the bottom left corner, this is the guy who coined the phrase, what would Jesus do? So when those bracelets became very popular, what would Jesus do? I think most good-meaning Christians didn't realize that it was actually a non-evangelical thinker almost 100 years ago who wrote a book in his steps. That's where the phrase came from. Because again, he, like Rauschenbusch, just thought being part of the kingdom is just living out the example of what Jesus did. Jesus who's dead. Jesus who lived long ago. Jesus who's not coming back. All right, It's a wrong view. It's bad theology. The second view here, this would be uh, kind of what... Toussaint calls a critical view or, or an eschatological view. Uh, the key thinker here would be Albert Schweitzer. So that's Schweitzer there on the right. Do you know Albert Schweitzer? He's an interesting character. He lives roughly his, his career between the, the world wars in the last century. He's a humanitarian. He moves to Africa, creates an orphanage. He's a philosopher, a musician. And because he's such a car- colorful character, he shows up sometimes in movies. Like, he'll he'll show up as a character sometimes in a movie because he's an interesting person, and he's a New Testament scholar. And he came up with the idea that, no, Jesus is actually talking about the same thing that the Old Testament prophets are talking about. There is going to be an intervention. There is going to be something dramatic that overturns the kingdoms of the world. But then, according to Schweitzer, Jesus realizes that he was wrong, that he has been mistaken. And so he has to die as a martyr and then it's left for his his followers like Paul to reinterpret then what Jesus meant. Again, this is a wrong view, all right? Uh, Going now into evangelical views, so views held by genuine believers, it's very common to see an amillennial view. So this view would just say the kingdom is, is purely spiritual. So the kingdom is God's spiritual rule over his elect, The elements in Old Testament prophecies that point to physical realities are applied either to spiritual realities in the church or taken as descriptions of the future new heavens and new earth. It's a very common view. Uh, So uh, Presbyterian churches, Reformed churches, this would be the common view. Sproul would be a very common teacher that we're all familiar with, that we appreciate much of what he does. This would be his view. I think they have an element of truth. So in a second, I'll talk about something in this that I do find attractive because they're emphasizing the people, the people who belong to this kingdom. But I think they've missed all of these Old Testament connections that Matthew is trying to draw. Okay. Another view, so this would be the view in the middle. So if you think in broad terms, the people on the left, they said uh, there isn't really any kind of kingdom coming from heaven. It's just something that we create ourselves here on earth. The guy on the right, Schweitzer, said, no, you're wrong. There really is, Jesus thinks, a kingdom coming from heaven. He just finds out that he's wrong about it. And he can't bring it in, and he tries to die as a martyr, and that doesn't work. In the middle is an evangelical view, lad. He tries to take a little bit from both views. He coins or makes popular the phrase that you'll hear often now, that the kingdom is already and not yet. So there's some aspects of it that begin during Jesus's ministry, especially the people who start being gathered. And Jesus, because he is the king, is present. But there's still lots of it that's not yet, that's out future on the other side of us, okay? So D.A. Carson, uh, one of my favorite commentators on Matthew, he would be another representative of this view. The last view here says, The kingdom that Jesus and John offered was identical to the kingdom promised in the Old Testament which will be established at his second coming. Some who hold this view recognize that John and Jesus, and later the followers of Jesus, were gathering citizens of this future kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. So I, with the, the amillennial view, I do think that there are people today who are kingdom citizens. So I, I labeled this class the king and his new community. So those of us who have turned from our sins and are trusting in Jesus, the ones who have received the new birth, I don't have any problem describing us as kingdom citizens. I think Paul uses this type of language. We have a citizenship that's in heaven. Peter talks about us as being aliens or strangers in this world. So we belong to another world, but we're here. But there's a whole lot that's in the not yet category. There's a whole lot about this world that isn't yet right. And it's not really up to us to recreate or reinvent this world. It's really up to us. Our primary mission of the church is to preach the gospel so that this community grows, so that there'll be more and more people who make up the constituency of this coming kingdom. I think that's the best way to, to look at that. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little further as we go along. So why do I think that? What would be one of my, if you ask me, what's my best argument for the last view? It's, it's point E here. Okay, So Jesus does not define the kingdom, but he assumes that his hearers are familiar with it. So if you just show up and you start talking about something and you don't explain what you're talking about, I think it's reasonable to assume that you're using a term that's consistent with the way people have already been using that term, or it's consistent with ideas that have already been presented. So I think the New Testament writers are assuming that you already have this concept and you've learned it from the Old Testament. I think the fact that it's called the kingdom of heaven, excuse me, is likely an allusion to Daniel. Okay, so especially Daniel two forty-four, chapter four, verse twenty-six, and seven twenty-seven. Now, sometimes you'll hear the argument that uh, the kingdom of God is separate than the kingdom of heaven. Anybody familiar with that argument? It's been around. So we we use the word dispensational. So I'm a dispensationalist. I grew up, uh, my parents were believers, so I had the privilege of going to church when I was a little boy and growing up, hearing many sermons, Sunday school lessons, whatnot. And this was very common, especially when I was little, to hear teachers say the kingdom of God is God's kind of direct, or I'm sorry, his broad general rule over the whole universe, something that's universal and eternal. The kingdom of heaven is something specific, that Jesus does. And uh, sometimes the argument had in it the piece that the Jewish people did not like to use the word God, and so they would substitute heaven for God as a circumlocution. You're familiar with this argument? That they didn't like to take the, the, the Lord's God, His name, in vain. Okay, So instead of using God, they would use kingdom of heaven as kind of a, a shortcut or a way of circumventing that. But I think the better answer is that Matthew likes the phrase kingdom of heaven because he's very familiar with the stories from Daniel of a kingdom that will come from heaven. The reason I say this, so you can look this up on your own, but if you go to Matthew chapter 19, so if you go ahead later in the story and look this up at home, when Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler, the rich man, he shows up, he wants to know how he can enter into life, okay? So he's talking about eternal life. Jesus, when he starts answering the question, and then when he talks to his disciples, he uses two other phrases interchangeably. He talks about entering the kingdom of God, and he talks about entering the kingdom of heaven. So for Jesus, all three of those are synonymous. So the place where we'll have eternal life, the place that will be the kingdom of God, the place that will be the kingdom of heaven, is just three ways of referring to the same thing. And if Matthew really had scruples about not using the word God, you think he would have just dropped out the kingdom of God altogether, right? But the fact that he includes it, I think, is evidence that he's using these interchangeably. But remember, this kingdom that Daniel envisioned is something that comes from God, from heaven, and comes here to earth. It supplants, it takes the place of all of the evil kingdoms in this world. So in Daniel chapter 2, remember it's the The statue, the metallic statue that has its feet knocked out by the rock. And it specifically said that this is a rock that's made without human hands. So this is a supernatural intervention. This kingdom that Daniel says he saw will never be destroyed. It will endure forever. And then in Daniel chapter 7, it's the same vision, but this time with beasts, right? And there it says that these beasts who represent the kingdoms of this world are... Have their kingdom taken away from them from one like a son of man, who will be given sovereignty, power, and greatness, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This will be something that I emphasize several times as we go through this this, this book, Matthew, because I think often when we start quoting lots of Old Testament prophecies and we start thinking about Jesus returning and ruling, we tend to just associate all of those prophecies with what we're going to know later from the book of Revelation is a millennial period, a 1,000-year period. But remember, that that millennium, that 1,000-year period, is just the first phase of something that will go on forever. Now, there is going to be a change there after those 1,000 years. There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a renovation of this world. But Jesus' rule goes on forever. I mean, that's a great component to include in our gospel witness, in our gospel preaching, that the person that we're talking to in their heart of hearts, they know that this world is broken. And they know that someone needs to make it right. And we have the solution to that problem. It's Jesus the new Moses, the deliverer. And when he comes and when he takes his place as the rightful ruler of this world, it will never end. It will go on forever and ever and ever. But only those who have repented, that's John's message, are going to enter that eternal kingdom. All right. There's going to be a great sorting, a spreading out or a dispersing of people that will take place. I'm trying to remember, do I go to, is it, what time? Somebody remind me, because I don't want to go over. Is it quarter after? Eight, okay, so i got a few more minutes. I'll pause there for a question or two. Yes, sir. I'm going back to the, the kingdom. Yes. I've, I've thought about this. What, what, is your, what is your starting point and ending point, if there is an ending point, of the day of war? Yeah, so that, that's a good question. So, some people would just say it's just the seven year tribulation period, you know, from Daniel. Some people would say it's the seven years and the 1,000. I tend to think it's the seven years and that it's the, the very beginning of the, the 1,000. That's how I tend to think of it. So, I think of it as a campaign, a battle. It's when Jesus Christ will return and he'll wage war to take back what's rightfully his. So it will involve a judgment of his enemies, a rescue of his people, and an establishment of his kingdom that will have no end. So that's kind of how I would slice it. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. it's a difficult question. The reason it's difficult is because when you get to Second Peter, Second Peter seems to include the new heavens and the new earth as part of that package of the day of the Lord. Yeah, so that's that's the hard piece to think about. I do think that there, maybe in Second Peter, though, he's thinking of the millennial period and the eternal state all as, as a package deal that'll come uh, suddenly without warning. The way I think about this, so, we have any soccer fans here? I'm not a soccer player, okay? So you're a soccer player? So any soccer fans, you guys can test out my illustration for me and tell me if it doesn't work. But when I've watched soccer games, which are always confusing to me because I don't understand the strategy, uh, they have a certain time period, right, that the game is supposed to last. But then there's been some dead time, I guess, so that when you get to the very end, you're not actually at the end. There's some penalty time, bonus time. Is it penalty time? Yeah. So that you know that the game has ended, technically, but there's this extra little slice of time, right? And at least as a fan, I don't know if you watch on TV, maybe they tell you, but at least when I'm at like a high school game or something, in the stands, you have no idea, at least I didn't like how long this is going to last, until at some point the referee blows his whistle and the game is over. Is that fairly accurate? I think to think of eschatology or the end times in the New Testament is to put ourselves in that bonus time. So as soon as Jesus was born, as soon as his forerunner John started preaching, we, we at any moment are going to enter into that, that whistle blowing. We're going to enter into the coming of the day of the Lord. Jesus himself is going to say it comes like a thief without warning. It could happen today. It could happen this hour, Lord willing. Or it could happen millions of years from now. We have absolutely no way of knowing. And for any of us to say we know is very presumptuous, right? Because Jesus himself said he didn't know. Only the Father in heaven knows. But we are living in this, this penalty time, this bonus time. So where I'm getting all this, and this is my point, is that I don't want to put a wedge between what John and Jesus were preaching and what we're preaching today. It's the same message. It's the same gospel. Nothing's changed, right? We're still going out into this world, and we're saying the day of the Lord is imminent. There's judgment coming on this world. You need to repent. You need to put your trust in Jesus. All right, let's flip the page there to page 19. So they have to preach repentance, and we'll come back to this. We talked about it a little bit last week, because the people of Israel will not be restored until they repent. You know, what does that look like? You know, 15% of them, 20% of them, I don't know. But it has to be a significant group within the, the broader people of Israel who have to repent. They have to turn back to God. There's this ongoing pun or plan words that takes place in the prophets, because the word for repent... In Hebrew, is the same word for turn or return. So the idea is God says, I will turn to you when you turn to me, and then when you turn to me, I'll turn back your fortunes. I'll restore your fortunes. So the three concepts all use the same Hebrew word. So it creates several delightful puns as you go through the prophets. God says, if, you turn to, or, or, if I turn to you, if I show you favor and change your heart, You will turn back to me, and when you turn back to me, I will turn back or restore, so to speak, your national privileges. I'll roll back those covenant curses. You'll receive the covenant blessings. But the people can't, right? That's always been the problem in the Old Testament. We can preach and preach and preach and call people to repentance, but until God changes their heart, right, they can't respond. They need a new birth. We're not trying to manipulate people into uh, a decision, right? We're not trying to get people down an aisle or to sign a card. None of that stuff has lasting internal value. What we're really hoping and trusting is that God, through the preaching of our word, will use that to change hearts. And the figure of speech in the Old Testament is the circumcision of the heart, which when you think about it is very appropriate, right? It's, it's internal heart surgery. It's being changed from the inside out. It's not external It's God reaching into your inner person and making you new. Moses says the people don't have that kind of heart. They have a hard heart, an insensitive heart. But someday they'll have a genuine heart. So if it starts on the inside and then works out, that explains why John, okay, this would be in point G there, when John sees many of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, appearing and trying to Uh, be baptized he turns them back right he turns them back and he's going to argue that they actually have to have fruit that's in keeping with repentance or you could translate that fruit that matches repentance okay so if someone shows up and says i'm a follower of jesus we would say great (laughs) that's wonderful then we would start teaching them what it means to follow jesus right And we would assume that little by little, baby steps along the way, that they would actually start demonstrating on the outside a change that God has produced on the inside. And John is saying to these religious leaders, you can't just show up here and expect for me to baptize you if you're not actually going to produce fruit that demonstrates that you've truly repented. Okay. One more passage we'll look at. So this is in... uh, point H there. Matthew tells us that John is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 43, so this is chapter 40 verse 3, and it's in verse 3 in Matthew's gospel, by being the one who prepares the way for Jesus, so making straight paths for him. So if you got your Bibles open in verse 3, it quotes from the prophet, it says a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths For him. a second, this slide will show up. The very last phrase there, if you look that up in your Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, it's make straight paths for God. So the original prophecy is that someday there's going to be a messenger. He's going to show up in the wilderness and he's going to make a level straight place for the coming of God. So again, think of day of the Lord, think of the campaign, God himself coming back to his people to make things right. But just like a king who's coming to a city, he would send minions ahead of him to make sure that the path was all cleared out and he'd have a nice smooth entrance into the city. The prophet Isaiah is using that for a metaphor for calling people to repent. So before God comes back, you have to have the path straight. You have to clear up your lives. You guys, you need to get your act together, if I can put it that way, so that God will be re- or you'll be ready for God when he actually appears for you. But Matthew has tweaked his his citation just slightly because he says, make straight paths for him. So who would be the him in this story? If John is the messenger in the wilderness, if he's the one that's calling people to repentance so that they can level this road out, who is the him that he's preparing the path for? Who is he the forerunner of? Who's going to come after him? Jesus himself. So... Matthew sees no problem taking an Old Testament passage that refers to God and applying it to Jesus, right? This is just another little hint, and he'll do this many, many times, that he truly believes that Jesus of Nazareth, that unassuming man that grew up in Nazareth, was God himself, that this was God in, in human form come to save his people from their sins. And so he can apply this Originally, of this passage that originally spoke about God very accurately to Jesus himself. All right? We'll have to stop there for tonight. I'll make a little pencil mark there on top of I, and we'll pick up next time. Thank you for your participation.